Today's scripture reading is from John 17, 6 through 12. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now that they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, and that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Penny. Well, hello. Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you. Uh, hope you're uh, excited about the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday this week, and uh, uh, I sure am. I'm thankful to be with you. Uh, and uh, today we're continuing in our, our series that we've been uh, calling Love Supreme, uh, and it's based on the anchor doctrines, what we're calling the anchor doctrines of the Protestant Reformation in commemoration of this being the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation. And uh, the second half of this series has to do with what uh, theologians call the doctrines of grace. Uh, these are teachings about salvation in Christ, uh, specifically how it happens, uh, who's responsible for making that salvation happen, and who the beneficiaries are. And uh, today's anchor doctrine has been historically referred to as the doctrine of limited atonement, and uh, it's a challenging doctrine to our sensibilities because what this doctrine says is that Jesus died on the cross for some people and not all people. And that's a difficult statement just by itself. Uh, but where do we get it? We get this understanding from the Scriptures themselves, and in this case from Jesus' mouth itself, where He says, I pray, Father, for those that You gave Me. I am not praying for the world, but only for those whom You've given Me, for they are Yours. All who are Mine are Yours, and all who are Yours are mine. This is one of the mysteries of the gospel, one of the mysteries of God's salvation in Christ. As it says in Matthew 22, 14, these are also words of Jesus, many are called, many are invited into the kingdom, but only a few are chosen, only a few are included. This might be the most disorienting of every doctrine that we're exploring in this whole series, and I, I think it's important to just acknowledge that up front. 
Here's the paradox. John Stott writes it this way, theologians have wrestled with the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility for centuries. The Bible teaches both truths. We could sum it up, however paradoxical it may sound, by saying that those who are saved will ascribe all the credit to God, while those who are lost will accept all the blame themselves. J.I. Packer said it similarly. He said, Christ did not die for everyone. The proof of that, as Scripture and experience unite to teach us, is that not all are saved. And so, the gospel here presents problems for everybody. If you're a rigid, exclusive type who lives from the posture that somehow God separates the world between the good people and the bad people, and you're on the side of the good people. Here's something that you have to wrestle with with the gospel. The family of God includes people that you would never invite into your circle. The gospel of Jesus Christ has removed dividing walls between people and people groups who would never invite one another into their own circles. The cross unites people from different cultures, different political orientations, different races, different generations, different nationalities, different income levels, different moral histories. And so, if your understanding of Christianity is that it's exclusive, bigoted, insider-outsider dynamic… You have to wrestle with the fact that Christianity is without question the most inclusive religion, philosophy, worldview, club, whatever word you want to assign to it that's ever existed in the history of the world. And yet, on the other hand, if you regard yourself as a more more tolerant and inclusive type, today's doctrine is going to really mess with you and with your presuppositions and with your assumptions. It's going to present to you this big problem. Why would God not make room in His family for everyone? And so, what I want to do in response to this question, I think that every honest heart is going to ask and wrestle with, I want to talk about the elephant in the room, the false idea that the elephant exposes, and the great salvation that it misses. So, first, the elephant in the room. The elephant is this. How can God be okay with saving some but not others? How can God include some in His family and not include others? And one of the ways to address this question is that this sentiment that's behind the question is largely a Western American sentiment. Uh, If you're familiar with Robert Bella's Habits of the Heart, uh, in that book, he popularizes the notion of, uh, of what he calls expressive individualism, which he says is the prevailing worldview of Western American culture. And Bella writes, people in the West want a God of love who affirms us no matter what we believe or how we live. Now, in ancient cultures, it was actually the opposite. In ancient cult- cult- uh, cultures, People believed that there is a universal law, that there is a higher good, that there is 
a moral fabric that applies to everyone and to whom everyone is accountable. And in ancient cultures, life's purpose, the purpose of life, the purpose for existence was to transform the individual so that the individual would align with the universal good, the universal right, the universal wrong, the universal truth that applies to everybody. But in the modern West, you know, Bella unpacks this in his book, in the modern West, it it, it flips this. The modern West, instead of assuming that there is a, a universal truth that comes at us from outside of us, the modern West assumes that the truth can be found within. And your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, my version of right and good and beautiful is, is equally as, as legitimate as your version of right and good and beautiful. And, 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 and in the modern West, Bella continues, the purpose of life isn't to align the individual with the universal truths of the universe. The, 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 the purpose of life is to manipulate the universe in order to align with my personal truth. You know, Tim Keller in, uh, in his book, Reason for God, says this, instead of trying to shape our desires to fit reality, we now seek to control and shape reality to fit our desires. We believe so deeply in our personal rights that the very idea of divine judgment or an exclusive God seems impossible. And then uh, Keller writes about a, a Q&A session that happened after one of his sermons in, uh, in Manhattan, in New York City. And a woman came up to him and said, I am utterly offended by the idea that, 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 that you, a preacher in modern times, would believe in the existence of, of a place called hell. I'm appalled at that. And Tim's measured response to her was, well, why doesn't the idea of a forgiving God offend you? Why doesn't the idea of a forgiving God offend you? And then he went on to challenge the woman to consider her cultural location. Because in the modern West, we are offended by the idea of judgment to the end that we pass judgment on those who, are offend, who, who, who embrace the idea of judgment. There's an irony to that. But, but what, what Tim was getting at is this. In other cultures, in other parts of the world, their everyday life is about surviving things like torture and tyranny and oppression and injustice. And People who live in those cultures are actually offended by the Western idea that everybody should just be let off the hook and included and allowed to live however they want. And, and, and so Tim went on to say, what empirical evidence do you have that your culture is superior to those cultures who are used to oppression, and therefore that your perspective is superior to their perspective? And furthermore, what gives you the idea that you, are, that you are more loving and more merciful than God? What gives you that idea? It really does 
beg the question, what does your loving God say to the father whose son just a couple of months ago died as a sophomore at Penn State through a hazing situation where several of his peers with whom he was seeking friendship and community forced him to drink 20 alcoholic beverages in 90 minutes, forcing him to fall onto the ground, his head getting battered on the ground, you know, every time it collided with the concrete, leaving him bruised, battered, and ultimately dead. What do you say to the father who is saying, this year, there's going to be an empty chair at Thanksgiving? What do you say? What does your loving God say to him? What does your loving God say to bullying victims? You know, there's this pamphlet that was produced by an elementary school that I won't name. It was reported in a newspaper a while back, but it was, it was a pamphlet written to those who had been bullied. And here's what the pamphlet says. If you are bullied, refuse to get mad. Treat the person who's being mean like they're trying to help you. Don't be afraid. Don't verbally defend yourself. Don't attack. If someone physically hurts you, don't get angry. Don't tell on the bullies. Don't be a sore loser. Learn to laugh at yourself. Now, the, the writers, in all likelihood of this pamphlet, as well intended as they may be, have probably never experienced what it means to be bullied because they're treating wounds lightly. Their approach will actually have the effect of making the world more violent, not less, because those who are victims have no outlet for the injustice that they feel. You know, Yale theologian Miroslav Volf uh, wrote this book uh, called Exclusion and Embrace, and it was largely, you know, born, the book was, from his, his theological commitments, which are, are Christian, and his experience of growing up in, a, in an aggressive, violent, socialist environment. And one of the things that he says in, in his book is, a God who will not call out wrong and who will not confront injustice is not worthy of worship. Lack of belief in God, in a God who judges, lack of belief in a God who judges is the cause of violence. Where else can we go with our hurt but to retaliation unless we know that there is a cosmic reality, a universal power, a God of justice who will make it right? So that's the elephant in the room, and, and there are all kinds of questions that it precipitates if we cling to the elephant. How could God judge anybody? What kind of God is that? Who does He think He is? You know, and Russ Ramsey, in a conversation we were having this past week about this, Russ Ramsey is one of our pastors here, you know, whenever we, we're in the posture of asking the question, who does God think He is? It really says a lot more about who we think we are to ask those kinds of questions. But what's the false idea that the elephant exposes? 
It's the false idea that, that, that God is up there getting His jollies over the idea of creating people so that He can then kick them in the teeth for eternity. The truth that we know about God's character with respect to the death and destruction of His enemies, of the people who hate Him most. We find this in Ezekiel. He takes no pleasure in the death even of the wicked. You see, Jesus portraying this as He weeps over Jerusalem and how how through tears He he says, you know, to those who have categorically rejected Him and who are seeking to, to murder Him, how I have longed to gather you under my wings as a mother hen gathers her chicks. Or the rich ruler who, who chooses money over Jesus and walks away from Jesus. It says that Jesus, in that context, looks at him and loves him. In the middle of his betrayal, this, this, the, the greatest betrayal in the history of the world, as Judas betrays Jesus with with an ironic kiss after selling him out for just a few coins, he says to his betrayer, friend, do what you've come here to do. And on the cross, praying for the murderous bullies who were putting the nails in him, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. I mean, what more do we need to understand that God, God gets no pleasure? He, he doesn't get His jollies with judgment. This is going to be the truth about authentic Christians as well. You know, a, a, a scolding, shaming Christian who believes in hell and, glad it, and is glad that it exists for other people is a contradiction to the heart of God. You see this in Romans 9, when the Apostle Paul is talking about his fellow Israelites who have turned away from Christ and and in so doing have turned against him, and he says, look, I still love my brothers so much and my sisters so much that if I could give up my own salvation and be accursed so that they could be rescued and experience the love of God through Christ, I would. He doesn't go to resentment or to victimology. He, 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 he goes to the place of affection and compassion for those who are blinded to the truth of God. You know, Jonathan Edwards, when he preaches his, his famous sermon that's more famous for its title than it actually is for its content, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, what, what many of us don't know is that when he preached that sermon, when he delivered it, he, he couldn't stop himself from weeping. As he's, as he's talking about the notion of separation from God, you know, this image of the stern, judgy, Pollyanna Christianity that, that, that gets its jollies from, 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 from God's judgment is, is an appalling contradiction to the heart of the one true God. And so, what is judgment? Here's what it is, and this this may or may not help us with the emotional challenges that all of these doctrines and truths from Scripture present to us, but in the end, judgment is something that the world, using Jesus' term from the, the text, that the world brings on itself. The world meaning a system, 
that is built chiefly on pride versus on humility. The kingdom of God is built on humility. The kingdom of the world is built on pride and self-sufficiency and self-centeredness. How does judgment work? It's right there for us in Romans chapter 1, where it says, the wrath of God is revealed. In other words, we know that the wrath of God is upon somebody when they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. In other words, when they've plugged their emotional umbilical cord into a counterfeit Jesus. You know, for the rich ruler, it was his money. For others, it may be something else. But judgment, the condition or the state of being under judgment is when we are saying, God, get your grubby hands off my life. This is my life. Who do you think you are? And God says, okay, and it says in Romans 1, He hands them over. In other words, if you're not going to yield to me, then I have no choice but to yield to you. And that's the most terrifying condition that a human being could ever be in. When God yields to our will, instead of pressing us to surrender and yield to His. And for those of us who are tortured by the idea that we might be standing under the judgment of God, that's a sure sign, if you're concerned about it, that you're not, that you're not, because those who are under judgment don't care. The idea of clinging to whatever I'm clinging to in hell is more attractive to me than knowing Jesus while losing what I worship more than Him. Luke chapter 16 presents this notion or this reality of of what it really means to be under God's judgment is to actually prefer hell over surrender. You've got this picture that Jesus paints in a parable of of a man named Lazarus who'd lived a very hard life who was a struggler in the world and who has finally found rest in heaven in Abraham's bosom, it says. And then the other person in the parable is the person that Jesus calls the rich man who's living, lived an opulent life, who, who during his lifetime was disinterested in God, self-absorbed. And for him, hell is merely just a continuation of that. It's just a continuation of his self-absorption. Interesting in that parable in Luke, Luke 16, the rich man doesn't have a name. He's called rich man, while the other man is named Lazarus, which, you know, maybe there's a connection to John 11, where Jesus' friend, who, who Jesus had resurrected out of the, the tomb. And yet, yet, the rich man is just called the rich man. He doesn't even have a name because he built his identity on being the rich man, on being large and in charge, on, 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 on his wealth instead of on his God. And he continues to act like that even when he's under fierce judgment. In the parable, he makes no request to be pulled out of hell. He makes no petition of God to pull him out of the hell that he has freely chosen himself. Instead, he says, as he had in his lifetime, send me some relief. Send me some creature comforts. Send me some cold water down here. And and he not only asks to send relief, he also says, 
send a servant. Have Lazarus bring me my water. No petition to get out of judgment. Only a petition to continue in the opulent idolatry that he had lived in all of his life before his final judgment. See, those who are outside of God's care and provision and family prefer to be there. Even in the most miserable condition, the person under judgment is immovable because God has left them to be who they want to be. The Scriptures even say the demons believe, and they shudder. Their their, their existence is miserable, but they're not asking for rescue. Instead, they want comfort and a servant to be sent to them in hell. How tragic is that? I mean, Tim Keller continues. He says, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. It is being eternally stuck. Humility is gone, and thus so is sanity. People on the way to judgment and people who are already there would rather have their freedom as they define it than have salvation. But then, the last thing about the elephant is the great salvation that it misses. This, you know, this taking offense, this, this feeling like, who does God think He is? The, the great salvation it misses is, um, you know, what, what one of our staff members, our director of missional living, Cami Bethay, likes to say, when God sends a gift, He always sends it in the form of a person. And here's what Jesus says about gifts in verse 9. I'm praying, Father, for those that you have given me, for those that you have gifted me, for they are yours. You've gifted them to yourself as well. You know, those of you who are are fans of the sitcom Parks and Rec might be familiar with this concept. You've got two of the characters that are saying to each other every now and then, treat yourself, treat yourself. Here we have a picture of how God chooses to treat Himself, how God chooses to splurge on Himself. But before I get there, let me ask a question. This is just a hypothetical. How do I know that I'm included? I'm a duplicitous person. I simultaneously love Jesus and betray Him every day of my life. How do I know if I'm in or out? Here's a simple inventory question we could ask our own hearts, even in the midst of our duplicity. If God were to come to you right now and say, you can have one or the other forever, you can have money or me, you can have popularity or me, you can have power or me, you can have control or me, you can have your sex life or me, you can have your bourbon or me, fill in the blank. Some of these are good things, but the question is, what do you want to be your ultimate thing into eternity? And if, you, if, if I'm pressing you right now, and, and this is the voice of God pressing you right now, which is it, me or that? Here's where your heart can take comfort. If, you're, if your easy answer to that is, even though I struggle in my heart between the two loyalties now, no question I would choose you, God. If that's where your heart is, you're in. You're in. 
The beauty is when you seek Him first, everything that your heart was looking for in the first place will be added to you as well. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you in their healthy form, in their healthy expression. You know, if you were with Peter and, and you would say to God, if he were to press you with that question right now, where else can I turn, Lord? You are the one with the words of eternal life. There's a twist here, too. There's a twist here. And that is that there can be hope even for the bullies. There can be hope even for the hazers, even hope for those who write stupid pamphlets that assault the hearts of young, bullied children. I mean, we have two classic historic pictures of bullies in King David who abused his power in order to commit a rape and a murder. And then we've got the Apostle Paul who at the end of his life said, even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, mercy was given to me even to me. See, David and Paul in their stories tell us how Jesus separates the world. And it is not between the rich and the poor or the good people and the bad people. Jesus separates the world this way, between the proud who say, give us our due. God forbid that God would give us our due. And the humble who say, forgive us our debts. How did God treat Himself? How did God splurge by subjecting Himself to bullying? He was beat to a pulp, subjected to verbal abuse, injury to the head, spleen, body, and soul. Alcohol was forced into His mouth on the cross by people He was trying to be friends with. When he was bullied, he refused to get mad. He treated those who were being mean like they were trying to help him. He wasn't afraid. He didn't verbally defend himself. He didn't attack those who physically hurt them. He did not get angry at them. He did not tell on the bullies. Instead, he prayed for them. He wasn't a sore loser. He was a victorious loser. You see the irony of all this? Jesus became the outsider in order to make us the insiders. Jesus became excluded in order to include us. Jesus left the empty table at Thanksgiving so there could be a place around the table of God for even us, for even us. If you're asking God in your heart, who do you think you are? It says a lot more about who you think you are than it says about who He is. And I know there's still so many questions, but may we all humbly submit, not asking the question, why would God not make room for everyone, but instead asking, why would God make room for anyone? Let's pray. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. 
love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen.